Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There was another unlikely scene in Montgomery as Jesse Jackson and George Wallace posed together for pictures. But it was not so unlikely for a man thinking about running for president. Not Wallace this time, but Jackson. In May of 1983, Jesse Jackson arrived in Montgomery, Alabama. The civil rights activist was welcomed to the capital of Southern resistance with a hospitality rarely ever afforded to African-Americans. Alabama's Governor George C. Wallace, who once declared, Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Served Jackson iced tea from a silver pitcher on the porch of the governor's mansion. The next day, Jackson would become the first African-American since Reconstruction to address the Alabama state legislature. It was the Reverend Jesse Jackson who called it a historic day. Eighteen years earlier, Jackson made a visit to Alabama under very different circumstances. Along with Martin Luther King Jr. and thousands of other civil rights activists, Jackson arrived in the heart of Dixie in the aftermath of Bloody Sunday. On that violent March day in 1965, just as the civil rights activists reached the crest of Selma's Edmund Pettus Bridge, that same hospitable governor, George C. Wallace, ordered baton-wielding state troopers to attack the 500 or so peaceful protesters marching for the right to vote. Seventeen were severely injured, including future congressman John Lewis. In a turn that those marchers could hardly have foreseen, the Southern political establishment that had sent batons into crowds now welcomed Jackson on his drive to register black voters across the South. The political about faced by Wallace and his allies was not a matter of conscience, but rather a stark realization of the growing influence and potential of black voters in the Democratic Party. In the years following the 1965 Voting Rights Act, some four million blacks registered to vote. With the fervor of a country church revivalist, Jackson hoped to enroll at least that many new voters before the November 1984 presidential election. His goal? To give African Americans a voice, a meaningful voice in the Democratic Party and America's future. Jackson began his voter registration drive on a shoestring budget. We literally had no money. Oftentimes we would raise the money in the rally to pay for the hotel that night and put the gas in the vehicle to get us to the next spot. Though lacking money, Jackson's Southern tour followed the path previously laid out by the civil rights movement he'd been a part of, relying on African-American churches and church goers for just about everything. These black women would have cooked all day and they would have greens and potato salad and cornbread. And, I mean, we on the press corps gained so much weight <laughs> traveling on that campaign. Excitement among black voters grew as word spread of Jackson's charisma and the once impossible possibility he might run for president. Here you had a guy that black people could really get excited about and get behind in a way that no Democratic, mainstream Democratic candidate could. He brought out these huge crowds at churches. I mean, I, I can't remember one church where it wasn't just standing room only. With each stop, Jackson's registration campaign signed up thousands. His flirtation with the presidency 
only added to the enthusiasm of these new voters. He was starting to give this speech in which he raised the possibility of a presidential campaign. And he was starting to get this reaction from audiences, mostly in the churches where he was speaking, this chant. At some point along the way, I don't remember exactly, but somebody in the audience started chanting, run, Jesse, run. And uh, it happened that a camera was there and it picked up and then it got reported. And from there, it just, you know, ballooned out of control. And everywhere we went, it was run, Jesse, run. Jackson would run. And almost overnight, he changed the perception of who could be a national presidential candidate. The rainbow coalition of supporters he assembled some 35 years ago is now reflected in the faces and backgrounds of today's Democratic contenders. Jesse Jackson, the longest of long shots, led a new movement, and in doing so, changed the Democratic Party and America forever. You could feel more than anything else, it was a feeling that this thing was exciting a lot of black folks in a way that uh, nothing had excited them in quite a long while. History may be written by the winners, but in American presidential politics, history is often shaped by the long shots. God bless you, and God bless America. These are the stories of the campaigns of presidential primary losers, the candidates who didn't make it onto the final ballot but still changed how we see America. No generation can choose the age or circumstance in which it is born, but through leadership, it can choose to make the age in which it is born an age of enlightenment, an age of jobs, and peace and justice. These are the stories of America's presidential primary battles, the contest for the most powerful office in the world. I'm Connor Powell, and I'll be your host. For the last decade, I've covered some of the world's most violent conflicts and turbulent international elections as a foreign correspondent. Now I'm back in the U.S., digging into the fascinating tales of campaigns that bring a kaleidoscope of color to our black and white history. You're listening to Long Shots. This is the story of Jesse Jackson and his Rainbow Coalition. When the Southern Democrat from Georgia, Jimmy Carter, was elected president in 1976, America was in tatters. Ripped apart by the battles over civil rights, the Vietnam War, and Watergate, the nation's struggling economy only made things worse as the post-World War II economic boom came to a grinding halt. High inflation hit those at the bottom of the economic ladder hardest, and the worldwide energy crisis caused the price of oil to double. Anger and bewilderment are growing as more and more Americans cope with gasoline lines and empty pumps. Isn't this disgusting? Why doesn't anybody contact the president? Why is he letting this happen to us? None of this was Carter's fault. But Carter rejected past liberal stimulus programs, like Roosevelt's New Deal, to jumpstart America's economy, instead opting to improve the federal balance sheet by controlling government spending, union workers, and African Americans. The bedrock of the Democratic coalition were suffering. Carter's economic policies were failing, opening the door to a progressive challenger. Carter was a conservative 
or a moderate Southern governor in Georgia, moderate Southerners are very conservative Democrats beyond the South. That is Frank Watkins. In 1984, he was Jesse Jackson's national press secretary. Watkins is really the one who gets the ball rolling here. I actually tried to get Reverend to run in 1980 against Jimmy Carter. And my argument then was it was time that we got a real Democrat in the White House. The Reverend, of course, is Jackson. Progressives were increasingly unhappy with Carter's policies and political style, which was anything but inspiring. Reducing the deficit will require difficult and unpleasant decisions. We must face a time of national austerity. Hard choices are necessary. By 1980, progressives saw an opening to retake the presidency, even if it meant taking it from a fellow Democrat. Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy launched a brazen primary challenge against the sitting president. Watkins urged Jackson to run as well. Now, Watkins didn't believe Jackson could actually win the presidency in 1980. But the progressive political strategist wanted Jackson to run in order to pull the black vote out from Carter and throw the nomination to Kennedy. Jackson resisted the plan. He liked Jimmy Carter and wouldn't do it. Indeed, in 1984, he didn't necessarily want to do it then. Four years later... After Carter had been drubbed by Reagan in 1980, a conservative renaissance was taking shape. And I have only one thing to say to the tax increasers. Go ahead, make my day. While the overall U.S. economy boomed under Reagan, his domestic budget cuts left many at the bottom worse off. While the White House's hostility towards ensuring civil rights only strengthened progressive calls for a candidate of their own, Jackson shared Watkins' view that the time was right for an African-American to run for the presidency, to energize their community. The electoral math was on their side as well. If black voter participation in 1984 increased by just 25 percent, Reagan's southern base of support, Tennessee, Alabama, North Carolina, and South Carolina, could easily be flipped the Democrats' way. Same held true with New York and Massachusetts. Jackson intended to energize and mobilize these mostly poor and black voters who had long set out of politics. The issues that impact upon the lives of the black and the poor will not be on the back burner next time around. Somebody must defend the poor. Whenever you defend the black, you defend the poor by definition. Jackson initially tried to convince other established black politicians to do it. Atlanta Mayor Andy Young scoffed at the idea. Others feared being embarrassed, or worse, assassinated. Failing in his campaign to recruit another candidate, Jackson decided he might have to be the change he was looking for. It's time for a new course, a new coalition, a new leadership. Somebody... Got to rise above race, rise above sex, a new leadership, a choice, a chance. Jesse Jackson's presidential ambitions faced stiff internal resistance 
from both the white and black Democratic political establishment. The Southern-born Baptist preacher came up through the ranks of Martin Luther King Jr.'s Southern Christian Leadership Conference and was standing with the civil rights icon when he was assassinated in 1968. By all accounts, says Sylvester Monroe, then of Newsweek magazine, King thought highly of Jackson. He was one of King's lieutenants, smart, some said brilliant, but also rash and very ambitious. But Jackson's ambition rubbed many in King's inner circle the wrong way. Some in the civil rights movement felt Jackson was too independent and a little too aggressive in his pursuit of a microphone. In the hours after King's murder, 26-year-old Jackson, wearing a blood-soaked sweatshirt, told reporters he was the last person to speak to Reverend King, and he alone had cradled the dying civil rights activists in his arms. Jackson was no doubt by King's side, but other civil rights activists complained his account was embellished. Following King's death, Jackson was sent on a mission far away from his peers at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So as both a slap and a reward to get him away from everybody down at SCILC, they made him the head of Operation Breadbasket in Chicago. In Chicago, Jackson turned his eye towards improving the economic opportunities for African Americans. He organized boycotts as a way to pressure white businesses to hire more black employees, earning praise from African Americans. In the 1970s, with the black power movement growing, he also earned a reputation among many whites as a troublemaker, an agitator. He was a good-looking guy, tall, strapping. He was nobody's sort of shuffling Negro. White Americans knew Jackson best from his appearance at the 1972 Watts Stacks Black Music Festival. Sporting an Afro and wearing an African dashiki, Jackson led a packed Los Angeles Coliseum in a primal scream of black solidarity. But I am somebody. I am black, beautiful, proud. I must be respected. I must be protected. What time is it? We all know, even today, how parts of America view ambitious, vocal, and proud men and women of color. In the 1970s and 80s, any show of black solidarity sent tremors through white America. I asked former CNN correspondent Charles Bierbauer, who covered Jackson, if he thought the idea of Jackson running for president in 1984 scared white voters. Did he scare some white people? Sure. Which white people did he scare? The ones that thought this would be the, the downfall of the republic? So if there's a certain, oh, Fox News-watching demographic that is scared to death today of people of color, multiply that number by a lot. That was the way many, not all, but many whites of every political persuasion viewed Jackson. By the time he ran for president, Jackson dressed like the other candidates in a traditional suit, but his flamboyant style was still extremely polarizing, both in the Democratic Party and America at large. Eight Democrats running for the nomination. This time around, you got a chance and you got a choice. Heading into the 1984 Democratic primary, 
there were two candidates who looked like serious contenders for the nomination. Jackson was not one of them. I know the American people, and I am ready. I am ready to be president. Former Vice President Walter Mondale had the backing of the Democratic establishment. The liberal stalwart was the clear frontrunner. The other leading contender was Ohio Senator John Glenn, who had the resume of a president and excited D.C. insiders, but few grassroots activists. Glenn had been a World War II fighter pilot and was the first American astronaut to orbit the Earth. All systems are go. So as political backgrounds go, that's pretty impressive. Jackson's National Press Secretary, Frank Watkins, saw a potential opportunity with Glenn. My strategy was to pull Mondale's progressive base out from underneath him, and hopefully Glenn would pull his conservative base out from underneath him. And we would also, well, the main thing, we would pull his African-American base out from underneath him, which could potentially knock him out of the race and put Glenn into the lead. Like Jimmy Carter, Glenn was a conservative Democrat. And so if he catapulted past Mondale, Glenn would likely need a progressive standard bearer as vice president to unite the party, or at least Watkins hoped he would. I don't think I was this naive that the progressive forces in the Democratic Party would then turn to Jackson. A more likely scenario was that he would build up progressive forces and the necessary African-American vote and wind up as the vice presidential candidate on a John Glenn ticket. Even Jackson's biggest backer saw the vice presidency as the best shot. To do this, the Jackson campaign had to solidify the African-American base. But many of the leading black politicians around the country had already signed up to support Mondale, leaving Jackson with little choice but to build an alternative movement from scratch. The Reverend Jesse Jackson made it official today before 3,000 cheering, singing admirers saying, I can run for the Democratic presidential nomination. The voice of duty has whispered, Thou must. I rise to declare that I can and announce to you this day my decision to seek the nomination of the Democratic Party for the presidency of the United States. 42-year-old civil rights leader launched his campaign in November of 1983. Jackson assembled an inexperienced staff and had few prominent supporters. When he announced his campaign in 1983, no one really took it serious. Support was hard to come by. Most of the Black Congressional Caucus had already endorsed Mondale, while civil rights icons like Coretta Scott King and Julian Bond also refused to endorse Jackson. Many questioned why he would run against a liberal ally. Jackson was on his own. His response to these snubs foreshadowed how he intended to run his campaign, saying Gandhi didn't go to the leaders for approval and neither did Jesus. These bold comparisons did little to quell concerns about Jackson's brashness. Pick up your slingshot, pick up your rock, declare our time has come, a new day has begun, red, yellow, black, and white, we're all precious in God's sight, our time has come. Not surprisingly, white politicians also stayed away. Still, on the day he announced his candidacy, Jackson stood on the podium surrounded by an ethnically diverse kaleidoscope of America. 
Members of the media described it as the beginning of a political crusade. Blacks, women, Hispanics, workers, Indians, Chinese, Filipinos, we must come together and form the Rainbow Coalition. We need each other. At the heart of Jackson's campaign was an argument that both parties had taken people of color for granted for too long, but especially the Democrats. We want our share of positions at every level in every state. We can do without the Democratic or the Republican Party. They cannot do without us. We are necessary. We must assert ourselves. Our time has come. However, the support of his most prominent backer would lead to accusations of anti-Semitism and would cast a dark shadow over Jackson's campaign for months to come. Jesse Jackson, the politician, was as controversial as Jesse Jackson, the civil rights activist. Not only for what he said and how he said it, but also who he said it with. If Jackson was controversial, then his friend and supporter, Louis Farrakhan, was radioactive. We and white people are mortal enemies. The satanic Jews that control everything and mostly everybody. The leader of the Nation of Islam has a long history of anti-Semitic rhetoric and bigoted language. In the early days of the campaign, Farrakhan was often by Jackson's side. The two activists had been friends for more than a decade. Remember, Jackson needed to find support outside of the traditional African-American political circles. So when he ramped up his presidential run, Farrakhan, awed by his boldness, offered to help. Members of the Nation of Islam provided Jackson with security until the Secret Service stepped in during the primaries. When Jackson led a delegation to Syria in December of 1983, just weeks before the first votes were cast to negotiate the release of the U.S. pilot, Lieutenant Robert Goodman, he took Farrakhan with him. A devout Muslim, Farrakhan was fluent in Arabic and was crucial to helping secure Goodman's release far more than the Christian leaders who were part of the delegation. After Lieutenant Goodman's release, Jackson was hailed as a hero. He even garnered praise from President Ronald Reagan in a Rose Garden ceremony. Reverend Jackson's mission was a personal mission of mercy, and he has earned our gratitude and our admiration. It was a political coup for Jackson, engineered by Farrakhan. But for every silver lining Farrakhan's presence provided, there was also a dark cloud hanging over the Jackson campaign. Like Farrakhan's claim, the U.S. political system was too corrupt to deserve black votes. He had never voted. He had uh, discouraged his members from voting. And in 1984, Jackson actually took him down to City Hall and publicly witnessed his registering to vote. And he encouraged his members to vote. The image of Jackson and Farrakhan together rattled the Democratic establishment. 
whispers that Jackson had a, quote, Jewish problem began to circulate. If it was just Farrakhan, Jackson may have been able to brush it all aside. However, Jackson also had a reputation for being pro-Palestinian, a stance many conservatives and liberals equate with anti-Jewish. In the 1960s, during the height of the civil rights movement, the Jewish community proudly marched alongside African Americans. By the 1970s, that alliance began to splinter. The reason? Israel. Jackson came from a wing of the civil rights movement that saw Israel's treatment of Palestinians as unconscionable. In the same way, he saw South Africa's apartheid system as immoral. In 1979, during a trip to the Middle East, Jackson met with and embraced Palestinian and PLO leader Yasser Arafat. Jesse Jackson was the most publicized visitor they'd seen in 12 years of occupation. He urged them to end the cycle of violence, and he taught them an American civil rights chant. I am, I am somebody. I am, I am God's child. We, we can win. At the time, the PLO was viewed by much of the world as a terrorist organization. Jackson was also a vocal supporter of a two-state solution between the Israelis and Palestinians, which only had fringe support back in 1984. Many Democratic Jewish activists shunned Jackson as a result. In turn, his campaign began to court the relatively new Arab-American community, many of whose members had arrived in the U.S. from countries that had gone to war with Israel in recent years. Jackson asked the young Arab-American activist James Zogby to join his campaign team. I remember saying to him, I can't leave what I'm doing. I spent the last four years organizing Arab-Americans. And he said, in the next four months, you'll do more than you did in the last four years. Jewish leaders, remember, a key constituent of the Democratic establishment, demanded Jackson remove Zogby from the campaign. Zogby says he was ready to quit. Jackson and his right-hand man, Jack O'Dell, counseled otherwise. And so it could have been either one said, um, if you quit, you give them what they want. What they most fear is that you'll stick around and fight. And so I didn't quit. And Reverend met with them and basically told them, screw off, he's staying, and I'm working with the Arab community. Jackson proved yet again he was willing to buck the establishment and would continue to build his own movement. We are in the midst of a generational war. Boomers just die. Xers, Karens, millennials, entitled brats, Gen Z, ungrateful TikTokers. I'm Carol Costello, a veteran journalist, and I have a new podcast series called I Hate Your Generation. It invites people in different generations to talk frankly, face to face, about everything from cancel culture to racial justice to socialism. Contentious, yes, but healing too. If you don't get your kit or that old guy, I Hate Your Generation is for you. Listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's available now. No generation can choose the age or circumstance in which it is born. But through leadership, it can choose to make the age in which it is born an age of enlightenment an age of jobs and peace and justice. Jesse Jackson started off the 1984 election 
as a fringe candidate, barely even a long shot. It was the era of corporate greed and Top Gun-style patriotism. Fringe voices like Jackson's were often obscured by the sounds of Wall Street, MTV, and the maxing out of credit cards. As a candidate, Jackson was hampered by whispers of anti-Semitism. And with almost no base of support, few in America took him seriously. His Democratic rivals, Walter Mondale, Gary Hart, and John Glenn, focused on winning the support of traditional white Democratic voters. Jackson was forced to cast a wider net, says former NBC News producer Alalia Bundles. Jesse Jackson tapped into a certain need, a certain sense of frustration and disenfranchisement among a wide range of people. We are called as leaders, not just to study the Wall Street Economic Index, but to study the misery index. Yes. And the danger index at the bottom. In the age of Ronald Reagan, with his massive cuts to social services and ever-expanding military budgets, there were many Americans who felt left out. At every stop, Jackson was connecting with these people as he railed against the viciousness of Reaganomics and the unfulfilled promises of America. I was in the churches. I was in the auditoriums when Reverend Jackson was speaking, and you could see the people who were hanging on his every word. There were many evenings when there were elderly Black people who were crying because Jesse Jackson was talking about their lives. He was talking about people who used to pick cotton who now could make a difference with their vote. With no real political expectation of winning, Jackson enjoyed the freedom to run an unconventional, authentically grassroots campaign, organizing in communities that had never voted. We registered people everywhere we went. So there were white young people, black young people, Hispanic young people, women, and so forth, who were registering and voting, it turned out, for the first time. The Jackson campaign focused its energy on forming an alliance of outsiders. He was creating a rainbow coalition. He was openly seeking the votes of African-Americans, but he was also openly seeking the votes of LGBT people, of Latinos, of Asian-Americans, of women, of progressives. Jackson was rapidly becoming the leader of a progressive resistance to Reagan, to Mondale, to anyone who didn't recognize the suffering taking place in America. My constituency is the desperate, the damned, the disinherited, the disrespected, and the despised. They are restless and seek relief. Jesse Jackson has amazing instincts about how to appeal to people. He can articulate a very complicated argument and break it down so that people understand it. While Reagan promised more tax cuts for the rich, Jackson visited impoverished neighborhoods and spent the night in the homes of the working poor. What Reverend Jackson was trying to show is that the working poor are often working harder and working more hours than the wealthy who are making a salary or who are living on their investments. He challenged not only Reagan's policies, but also the Democratic establishment, talking about HIV-AIDS, universal health care, income inequality, and racism. Jesse Jackson talked about those issues. He made those issues legitimate. He made people feel that he was going to do something to help them. 
In many ways, his campaign was the next phase of the civil rights movement, a transition from protests to electoral politics. That path, however, says former Time magazine Jack White, was uncharted territory. These guys didn't know what they were doing in terms of politics. They knew what they were doing in terms of movement. It was like a a traveling tent show in a way. They were making it up as they went along. The Jackson campaign quickly earned a reputation for being late and pretty disorganized. It was a very non-traditional fundraising campaign. They passed these Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets around and they would collect an offering. People were used to being inspired by a sermon, and in this case by a political speech that was mixed with some sermon, and then you pass the collection basket. And that's how much of the collections happened in many, many venues. It was very much in that tradition of being in the church, which is very much what Reverend Jackson was about. Well, you wouldn't see Walter Mondale <laughs> going around raising money with a Kentucky Fried Chicken bucket. I never saw any other presidential campaign do that. That was straight out of the black church. Before the Michigan caucuses, we went to Uncle Sam's. It was a like a nightclub, and the band was playing, and people were throwing money, and uh, collected all the money, and we rented buses to take people to the caucuses. Jackson's eclectic rainbow coalition, as he came to call it, did little to help him win the first campaign test. Mondale won the Iowa caucus easily, while Gary Hart surprised many with a strong second-place showing. Iowa was simply too white and too rural for Jackson to compete. He finished with just 1% of the vote. As the race moved to New Hampshire, Jackson would face his first crisis of the campaign, one entirely of his own making. Despite being a charismatic and brilliant speaker, Jackson had little experience interacting with the Washington press corps. He shunned traditional reporter code words like off the record and on background. Instead, he often took a laid back approach to speaking with journalists, especially African-American ones. He would say things like if he wanted to talk to you confidentially or a black reporter, he would say things like take off your reporter's hat and put on your black hat and he would talk to you. He seemed to feel like we were part of his team, in a way. And we, of course, we weren't. We were reporters. This relaxed attitude endeared him to his press entourage and nearly ended his campaign. Just a few weeks after returning a hero from Syria, Jackson had one of his informal conversations with two black reporters while waiting for a flight out of Washington's National Airport. During it, Jackson allegedly referred to Jews as Jaimes in New York City, as Jaime Town. Jackson seemed to believe both the Washington Post reporter Milton Coleman and the New York Times reporter Gerald Boyd would not print the slur. But several weeks later, just days before the New Hampshire primary on February 13th, in an article about Jackson's tumultuous relationship with Jewish voters, the Washington Post quoted Jackson using the words Jaime and Jaime Town. The phrases were buried deep in the 37th paragraph of an article by Rick Atkinson with a contribution by staff writer Milton Coleman. As I mentioned earlier, the Jewish community was deeply troubled by Jackson. Before the Jaime Town comment controversy, much of the criticism was made behind closed doors, circulating the political world via polite whispers. 
Don't forget, Jackson was also raising hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Arab-American community while palling around with Louis Farrakhan. He was appealing to Arab-Americans and that that created a conflict uh, and it created a suspicion. And when he made the Jaime Town comment, that just solidified and confirmed the suspicions that many people had had about him. Not surprisingly, a firestorm erupted following the Washington Post article. Jesse's campaign came to a screeching halt. Jackson first just dodged the questions. His standard line was, I have no recollection of having used that language. With the New Hampshire primary right around the corner, Jackson was now facing his greatest test. Inside the campaign, his advisors were divided over whether or not to apologize. The suspicion and animosity ran both ways. He was so pained over it that it was really difficult, actually, to see him go through it. And I remember we went up to Manchester for the debate, and I got on the plane, and he looked like death warmed over it. At the debate, Jackson was asked about the incident by Barbara Walters and once again denied using the slur. He just ducked it because it hurt too much either way. Ultimately, Frank Watkins convinced Jackson an apology was needed. Zogby. Jackson's Arab-American advisor and a lightning rod himself for Jewish anger was tasked with drafting the apology. And at one point, I remember saying to him, Reverend, look, this is, this is not easy. This is an Arab guy writing a speech for a black guy to apologize to Jewish people. I'm not, this is not like natural. My father is up in heaven looking down saying, what's going on here? After weeks of trying to outrun his own words, Jackson finally fessed up. Two days before voters were set to cast their ballots, on a bitterly cold night, Jackson walked into Temple Adat Yesharun in Manchester, New Hampshire, and acknowledged he had used the insensitive phrases. He also insisted he was not anti-Semitic nor anti-Israeli. The emotional speech swayed some in the Jewish community, but the incident plagued Jackson throughout the rest of his campaign. Then, as if the situation wasn't bad enough, Louis Farrakhan went nuclear by threatening Jews and anyone who attacked Jackson. I say to the Jewish people who may not like our brother, it is not Jesse Jackson that you're attacking. When you attack him, you attack the millions that are lining up with him. You're attacking all of us. But if you harm this brother, I warn you in the name of Allah, this will be the last one you harm. Farrakhan also went directly after the Washington Post reporter, Milton Coleman, in a national radio broadcast. Don't tell me nothing about you a reporter. You a nigger in the eyes of white people. Do you understand what I'm saying? I said, but we're going to make an example of Milton Coleman. One day soon, we will punish you with death. We're going to punish the traitor and make the traitor beg for forgiveness. Jackson was forced to cut all ties with Farrakhan. I don't think his campaign ever really quite recovered from the damage that was done by that incident, by the threats that were made on uh, Milton Coleman. To this day, the entire episode leaves a bad taste in the mouths of many of Jackson's closest supporters. I had never, ever heard him use the phrase before, and I'd been with him since May the 1st of 69, and I've never heard him use the phrase since, so... I don't know where it came from, what it 
meant. Other advisors later conceded Jackson had used the phrase Jaime, though not necessarily in a pejorative sense, if that matters. Journalists also had stories of Jackson's foul language. During a trip to Tuskegee, Alabama, just days after announcing for the presidency, Jack White of Time Magazine says he was part of a conversation in which Jackson's economic advisor, Lamont Godwin, used the phrase Jew boy. I was shocked uh, when I heard that because I would have thought that Lamont, who was a, you know, pretty sophisticated guy with a PhD, knowing there were reporters around, would have watched his mouth. But he didn't. And in the course of that conversation, Jesse used the term Jaime Town to refer to New York. Sensing this was something to be watched, White sent a note to his editors at Time magazine about Jackson's language and told other journalists as well. It went nowhere until the Milton Coleman story. I only heard him say Jaime and Jaime Town just that one time. But I heard him use other terms, referred disparagingly to ethnic groups and to gay people and stuff. There's no doubt the Town incident changed the Jackson campaign and hurt him in New Hampshire, where, once again, he trailed Walter Mondale and Gary Hart. The tenor of it, the color of it, the way it felt, which was, it was just different after that. The struggle to make a family can be so painful, sometimes you just have to laugh about it. That's why I created IVFU, a podcast about the pain, joy, angst, and love of trying to make a family the new-fashioned way. Join me for uninhibited, honest conversations with patients, doctors, egg donors, adoptive parents, and more. I'm your host, Sam Shaber, singer-songwriter, storyteller, and infertile mama. Find us at IVFUPodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you stream your pods, because it's all about being a family. After disappointing results in Iowa and New Hampshire, the Democratic contest turned to the South on Super Tuesday, with primaries in three southern states with sizable black populations, Georgia, Alabama, and Florida. The March 13th contests were Jackson's best bet to prove himself. Though he failed to win any of the states outright, Jackson showed he was more than a fringe candidate, receiving an outright majority of the black votes in all three states, and winning an impressive 21% statewide in Georgia, the best ever showing for an African-American presidential candidate. Jesse Jackson, now up to 20%. That's important for him. If he stays there, he'll continue to get federal matching money. Mondale solidified his lead over Hart in a rapidly shrinking field of candidates, but Jackson kept his campaign alive. I'm excited. Our race has momentum and it continues to grow. More importantly... Jackson could now legitimately claim to represent the all-important black vote, which ensured him influence and even a seat at the Democratic convention. Backed by a wave of energized supporters and a surge of new black and minority voters, Jackson only grew stronger in the later primaries. He even notched historic outright victories in Louisiana and Washington, D.C. The long shot was now winning primaries deep into the Democratic nominating process. In the end, Mondale clinched the nomination with little fanfare, and Jackson placed third behind Gary Hart, a campaign that started off as a ragtag tour of the South just months before had made history, winning more than 3 million votes nationwide. With his success, 
Jackson gained leverage and influence over the Democratic Party. Jackson wasn't riding a wave anymore. He was the wave. Our time has come. Give me your tithe. Give me your poor, your hollow masses who yearn to breathe free. And come November, there will be a change because our time has come. Going into the Democratic Convention in July of 1984, there was a buzz and energy in San Francisco that, let's just say, wasn't radiating from Walter Mondale. One question was on everyone's mind. What does Jesse want? That headline was everywhere. Jesse Jackson was not going to get the nomination, but Jesse had actually come with enough delegates that he had to be listened to. Both Jackson and Gary Hart had done well enough during the primaries to influence what was supposed to be Walter Mondale's celebration. But it was Jackson who the Democratic leadership feared. His strong showing among Black voters, a key Democratic constituency, gave him extraordinary influence at the convention. At the convention, there was a great deal of nervousness on the part of Mondale's staff how they were going to navigate and what does Jesse want? And, you know, what is Jesse going to say that's going to upset the apple cart? So in a sense, upsetting the apple cart was the entire point of Jackson's 1984 campaign. So Mondale had every reason to fear Jackson. He was going to use that moment. Jesse is a master of using the moment, of turning the spotlight on himself. But in this moment, it wasn't just about ego. Jackson wanted something more. He wanted respect, respect for African-Americans, for Mexican-Americans, for Arab-Americans, for Asian-Americans, for gays, for women, and for all the excluded groups that were part of the Democratic Party's rainbow coalition, but that were not, when it came to the real power and influence, part of the Democratic Party. I think the idea was to create a commotion, get a voice and a seat at the table, and they succeeded in that. With his delegates and the energy of his new supporters, Jackson was now a power broker. Behind the scenes, however, the Jackson campaign was in disarray. They were the new kids on the block and didn't have a clue how to navigate the arcane convention rules. We got to the convention in 84, and um, the Hart people and the Mondale people were all organized, and we didn't know what to do. We we were getting rolled. Uh, People weren't organized, so there was a lot of griping going on. What they lacked in organization, they more than made up for in enthusiasm and energy. And ultimately, it was clear what Jackson wanted. You can do in one word, justice. You know, he wanted um, equal opportunity for everyone. He wanted a seat at the table. He wanted uh, these progressive planks in the Democratic Party platform. And he also wanted, and one of the things he got eventually, was uh, a changing of the rules Jackson's campaign wanted significant challenges to the process of how delegates were allocated and pushed the Democratic Party to abandon its winner-take-all primary system and replace it with one that assigned delegates proportionally. Jackson, like all good politicians, also wanted a primetime speaking spot at the convention. Mondale may have been the nominee, but it was Jackson with his electrifying Rainbow Coalition speech that provided the message for both the party and the nation. Our party is emerging from among this most hard-fought battles for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination in our history. But our health and competition should make us better, not better. 
We must use. We must use the insight, wisdom, and experience of the late Hubert Humphrey as a bomb for the wounds in our party, this nation, and the world. We must forgive each other, redeem each other, regroup, and move on. Our flag is red, white, and blue, but our nation is rainbow. Red, yellow, brown, black, and white. We're all precious in God's sight. Nobody had ever done what he did. Though he lost the Democratic nomination to Walter Mondale in 1984, Jesse Jackson proved what just a few months before was unthinkable. An African-American could seriously compete for the highest office in the land. The dynamic changed with Jesse Jackson's effective campaign, effective in terms of forcing people to realize the nature of the country and the party and the electoral process had changed and was probably not going to go backwards. Walter Mondale would go on to lose the 1984 general election to Ronald Reagan in a historic landslide. As is so often the case in loss, the Democratic Party tried to redefine its defeat in a way that would shape its future. But it was the lessons learned from Jackson, not Mondale or anyone else, that provided the blueprint. The Rainbow Coalition, looking back now in hindsight, that progressive coalition was way ahead of its time. Jackson's Rainbow Coalition was now the only viable path forward for Democrats as the party continued to lose white voters to Republicans. We registered people everywhere we went. So there were white young people, black young people, Hispanic young people, women, and so forth. He gave them the formula for winning in the future, which was the Rainbow Coalition. Just two years later, the Rainbow Coalition would pay immediate dividends as Democrats shockingly regained control of the U.S. Senate by flipping seats in Maryland, North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. But it was black votes that won the South for us. And that was reverent strategy. At the same time, a new generation of Democratic leaders began to emerge. In 1989, Douglas Wilder swept to power in Virginia, becoming the first black governor of any state since the Civil War. Then, a slew of African-American mayors were elected. Norm Rice in Seattle, David Dinkins in New York City, Willie Harrington in Memphis, and Wellington Webb in Denver. The strategy was very simple, and it was to increase voter registration in the South and increase it in northern cities so that more African-Americans could be elected. That was the point, was to create a wave that others would ride. With all his faults, no one could have moved African-Americans from point A to point B as he did. There was no one else who could have done it. That 84 campaign is just so important. A quarter of a century later, Jackson's 1984 campaign was still moving America forward. At one level, that was the most important thing that came out of the uh, campaign was that rule change. Certainly it was true in terms of Barack Obama. Remember at the Democratic convention when everybody was asking, what does Jesse want? Well, in 1984, the Democratic Party had a winner-take-all primary system. All of the delegates were awarded to the winner of each state primary, no matter the size of the victory. Win by one vote or 50,000. It didn't matter. You got all of the delegates. It was an inherently unfair system. Take Jackson. He received roughly 20% of the total vote in the 1984 Democratic primary. 
but earned only 12% of the delegates. So Jackson pushed hard to change the rules to a proportional system at the San Francisco Convention. Make no mistake, Jackson believed he would benefit from the new system in 1988 when he ran again. The changes ended up being a really important difference maker down the line in 2008. Without that change and without the work of Jesse Jackson, the Jackson campaign in 84, there would be no Barack Obama. I don't think people realize that. You can boil it down to one sentence. No Jesse Jackson 84, no Barack Obama in 2008. In 2008, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton each received nearly 18 million votes. Obama won more primaries, while Clinton won all of the big states, New York, Texas, Florida, California, and Pennsylvania. Under the old rules, Clinton would have won the nomination easily because she won the states with the largest populations. That, of course, didn't happen. And Obama went on to make history as the first African-American president, thanks in part to Jackson's ambitious 1984 campaign. And it's still proving to be an important campaign today. The real strategic thing that he did was change the party rules. In 1984, Jesse Jackson was a long shot. He was black. He was an outsider. And he lost the nomination. History may be written by the winners, but in American presidential politics, history is often shaped by the long shots. While Jackson's name didn't end up on the final ballot, his campaign is still shaping our political system decades later. I know we changed America forever. It'll never be the same again. You've been listening to Long Shots. Thanks to our guests, Frank Watkins, Jim Zogby, Charles Bierbauer, Alalia Bundles, Jack White, and Sylvester Monroe. Long Shots was created by me, Connor Powell, and produced by Gary Scott of Inside Voices. Our sound editor was J.C. Swadek. Sound design was done by Logan Heftel. Thanks to Jake Blue Note for the Long Shots theme song, aptly called Linger. And thank you to our social media strategist, Madeline Rosine. Thanks to Starburns Audio for the use of their studios. And a special thanks to the team at Karamis, who built our website at longshotspodcast.com. Karamis is a leader in creative, strategy, and software development. Whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a newly formed startup, the team at Karamis will get your concept to the market quickly. If you like today's episode, you're in luck because there are more stories just as bananas as this one. Please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening. Leave us a review on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Good Pods app and recommend us to a friend. Until next time, I'm Connor Powell telling you politics has always been nuts. 